people of God, let us once again turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, this morning, verses 30 through 44. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 30. Before reading, let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we are humbled to be a part of this body, week after week to open the Word together, to hear it expounded, to believe that the Holy Spirit even now is working, and to see in multitudinous ways the transformation that comes in our lives as believers because Thou art the God who has given us this book and continues to use it and will until we reach our heavenly home. We confess ourselves to be pilgrims, needy, clinging to thy promise, totally dependent upon thee, having nothing of our own, no merit of our own, but the merit of Christ alone redeems and saves. And as we ask that we will understand that the Spirit of God illumine the page, that our hearts would be open to receive it, that there be no hindrance, that attitudes will be good, that there will be no bitterness or strife or discontentment. We also pray that as we grow as believers, coming again and again to that same gospel by which initially we were brought to saving faith in Christ, we also pray for those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus, some young, some old, some in between, who have never bowed the knee before the Lord Jesus. They have never trusted in Christ alone for redemption, and oh, how we long to see others come to know the Lord and to trust in Him for time and for eternity. So hear our prayer, asking for illumination and the work of the Spirit as we come to the divinely inspired Word of God to be read and preached. We ask it in Jesus' name, our great High Priest. Amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 30. This is the Word of God. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, "'This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late.' Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. 
And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the miracles of Jesus, remember, are signs that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God, as spoken of in the Gospels, is not primarily focused upon geographical extent. It is the saving rule of God that has come through Christ that has now arrived in his person and in his work. And the miracles show that the Lord provides for our deepest heart's needs as sinners, that he has provided for those needs by his coming and by his cross and by his resurrection. Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Or do you stubbornly hold on to the thought, I know what my deepest needs are, apart from God, and though he may be there to provide what I think my deepest need may be, God is somehow in the wings for me. Well, God is not in the wings. He's the center of everything. He must be the center of our universe. And here we see that God knows what is our deepest need and how to provide for it. And that he does in this miracle, in the demonstration of his almighty grace and power still applies to you and to me today. Jesus takes his disciples into literally a wilderness place apart. The disciples had been preaching and casting out demons. The Lord Jesus had been busy in ministry. And so he wants to pull them aside and give them rest. Now remember, the wilderness is the theologically correct place for the Messiah to be manifested. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 40, in which John the Baptist is prophesied in the wilderness, speaking beforehand the coming of the Lord. We saw it when Jesus in his temptation went into the wilderness, and we see it here in this narrative. And so we are alerted from the start to look for fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and themes from the Old Testament as we come to this passage. And here we have the presence of Jesus with his disciples and the gathering of the people of the new exodus, the new covenant people of God where Jesus provides for them in the wilderness. He is Jehovah providing for his people just as Jehovah provided for his people in the wilderness in the old administration of the covenant. And so as we come to this text, we see how he does this, first of all, as the good shepherd. So that's first, the good shepherd. And we read about his being the good shepherd in verses 33 and 34. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot and from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. The Lord Jesus then is tired. He needs rest, as do his disciples. He leads them to this secluded place. Our Savior is fully God and fully man. He is completely God. He is completely man. There is the the perfect union of his two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, as the Council of Chalcedon properly said, and I've repeated hundreds of times from this pulpit. And so he is not simply 50% God, 50% man. There's no confusion of the two natures, no mixture of the two natures. He is 100% God, 100% man, and as man, he is tired. He is exhausted. He needs a break from the stress. Perfect union between the two natures in one person, but in his humanity, he needs rest. And the crowds follow him into the wilderness. They cross on the lake. They know he's coming, and they run around, and they come from the towns and villages, and they're there before Jesus even sets foot on the shore. And Jesus sees the crowds coming against the green grass, and they must have looked like a flock of sheep. And he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, we are told. So he doesn't say, oh, oh my, I'm, I'm exhausted. I, I just don't have anything else to give. I need to rest. No, he sees them. He's moved with compassion, and he is going to meet their need. He sees them tired and hungry, in need of nourishment, and especially spiritual nourishment in what is more vulnerable than a sheep. They should have had shepherds who knew the Word of God. They should have had shepherds that knew the needs of their hearts, who could minister to them from the Old Testament about the Christ who would come, and the Christ who has come now, fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. But Herod the king and the priests And the scribes had not been nourishing shepherds. Rather, they were ravenous wolves. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, Herod had thrown a banquet for the rich and famous, and during it had slain John, who had been a true shepherd of God's flock. Instead of denying himself for the sake of the people as their true shepherd, Herod had indulged himself and ignored them. But now we see the Lord Jesus Christ. How the scribes, how the Pharisees should have shepherded people because of their knowledge of the Word of God, but they did not understand that it was all about Christ. How much more over against Herod can it be said of the spiritual leaders that they were not shepherds to the flock of God? And Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, there's probably here, almost certainly, an allusion to Old Testament passages. In Numbers 27, 15 through 17, in which Moses prayed to the Lord to provide a leader after him, it says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. 
And the immediate fulfillment of this, of course, is Joshua. But the long-term fulfillment is Christ, the new Joshua. Jesus, of course, means Joshua. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, another wilderness context in which God's people need a faithful shepherd and they do not have one. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals, we're told in Ezekiel. And in this context, God promises that he will send a faithful shepherd. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them to be their shepherd. I will make with them a covenant of peace. And so Christ is David's greater son. He is the fulfillment of all that is promised in these and like passages in the Old Testament. He is the covenant Lord who will shepherd his people. And here we have a prefigurement of it in this passage. Jesus is the one who shepherds his flock. Jesus is the one who feeds them in the wilderness. He is the one, according to Isaiah 40, that same passage that that says John will come and will preach him in the wilderness as a forerunner. It says, the one who will come, Jesus, tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And people of God, he is still your shepherd. He is still the one that gathers you in his arms. He's still the one who feeds and cares for you and nourishes you. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the one who gives rest. He is the one who restores our souls, though fallen in sin. He is the one who gathers the needy, new Israel, and in this text establishes table fellowship with them. He is the one who comforts us in our needs. Now, for what do you hunger? What is the deep longing of your heart? What do you want most? And if you do not get it, what is your attitude toward your good shepherd? When you do not get that which you think you most need, are you disappointed? Are you worrisome? Are you distracted? Are you a fretting Christian? Are you spiritually dull? Are you angry with God? Do you desire to take it into your own hands rather than trust Him? Can't you see that I need this, God? And the implicit assumption is that God has not sent His Son to be our shepherd. It's tantamount to denying His love, which can never be doubted, because God showed His love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No matter what comes into our lives, we can never doubt His love. So do you think that hardship, travail, or failure to get what you want means that Christ is no shepherd to you? But when we know that the Lord is our shepherd, then our attitude becomes that of Habakkuk of old who said, though the fig tree should not blossom. Listen to this. Though I don't have any of the things for which I've longed, any of the things that I think I might need, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, 
The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk says, though I have none of those things for which my soul has longed, I have him. I know God. I have communion with Him. He's the shepherd of my soul. And so what we really need, people of God, in the midst of whatever the troubles are that we might face, is not to escape, take it into our own hands, to be worrisome, to be doubting. What we really need is communion with God. And if we lose all else, we have that great grace of knowing Him and having His salvation And that's everything. Yes, He provides in our wilderness wandering, in our pilgrimage to heaven, under the authority of His Word, He actually provides what we need. He does that for Christians in North Korea and in China and in Iran who don't have the third, who who don't have the first world problems that we have. Tongue-in-cheek comment. And so he can shepherd you, and he can shepherd me. But then we see, secondly, provision in the wilderness. It's significant that seeing the shepherdless people, the first thing that he does, according to verse 34, is teach them. He doesn't give them physical food first. He doesn't deal with other kinds of issues that they might have. Surely there are sick among them, and probably the palsied and the lame. No, he teaches them. And that's still the calling of his faithful under-shepherds, the pastors of the church. It's what he said in the very first chapter of Mark's gospel that he came to do. But they also need food for their bodies. And it's this interesting exchange in verses 35 to 38 that we need to look at right now. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. So the people are hungry. It's getting late. They need to go and they need to get something to eat. And Jesus said, well, you give them to eat. Uh, but Lord, this, 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 this will be a lot of money. Why did he ask them, you give them something to eat? Why did he say that? Because he is the bread of life. Because he is their resource for this crowd and for themselves. Because they need, because you and I need to learn to turn to Jesus and to rely upon Jesus and not to find worldly fixes for our problems. We don't have the resources. It's about a full year's wages, they say here, to buy food for this crowd. And Jesus will show them that all the resources are in him. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, five and two fish. Probably we're meant to think here of Numbers chapter 11. Where can I get meat for all these people 
asks Moses of the Lord, and the Lord answers Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? And so in verses 39 and 40, it's rather beautiful, isn't it? Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now, this is an eyewitness account. Remember that we believe, because of what church history tells us, that Peter was preaching, Mark wrote it down, and this becomes the the gospel of Mark. And so we have details all through Mark, the green grass. And actually, where we are told here that they sat down in groups, it's flower beds or garden beds. R.T. France translates this, men lined up in groups like plots of vegetables on the green grass. And there's a possible allusion here to the camp of ancient Israel that gathered in groups. And so there they are, and they're on the green grass, and they look like, with all their colorful clothing, they look like flower beds or garden beds. And then in verses 41 through 44, we read, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now in Matthew chapter 14 verse 21, we are told that in addition to the five thousand, there were women and children. So it wasn't just five thousand, it was who knows how many, because families were there together. And two Old Testament narratives come to mind. One of those is the passage that Pastor McDonald read from us from 2 Kings chapter 4 just this morning, in which Elisha is asked to feed a hundred men with a very small amount of food. And he does so. So what do we have here is that this is a feeding miracle of greater dimensions than Elisha's. And it also brings to mind, and should, we find this in John 6 as it relates this miracle. It should bring to mind the manna from heaven in which God provides for his children in the wilderness, because Jesus is the new Moses, exceeding Moses. He is the final prophet, as well as our priest and our king, who supplies the manna for the new covenant people of God. Well, it's breathtaking if you think about it, isn't it? This miracle that we see here in this passage And you may say, yes, it's a wonderful thing, Pastor, but so what? That is to say, how does that influence me as a Christian? How does that that minister to my life? Well, that takes us to the third thing, the significance of this miracle. The significance of this miracle, first of all, is fulfillment. We've had references here to Exodus and Numbers and 2 Kings and Isaiah and Ezekiel and probably even Micah that I did not quote. Jesus is the longed-for Messiah who will come and shepherd his people and provide for us in the wilderness. The kingdom of God is here, and he gives us our daily bread. The, the, The miracle that we find here speaks to our hearts. It addresses our lives in all sorts of ways, but we begin with simply the reality that he's come. The stupendous miracle of the incarnation has taken place. God became man and dwelt among us and wrought our salvation. 
But then another way in which this speaks to us is by giving to us a present focus. We now have communion with the Lord, and it would be difficult for the early church to fail to see that this feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness has some reference to the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus here is in the miracle saying to them something about the Lord's Supper that had not yet been instituted. What I'm saying is that once you've read through Mark's gospel and you read through the institution of the Lord's Supper there in Mark chapter 14, it is very difficult not to think back to this passage and to realize that yes, this same Lord that did this then continues to feed his people through the supper now. It would be difficult not to see this. And I think this is especially clear in John's gospel in the Bread of Life discourse in which there seem to be clear references that should, for those who are post-resurrection readers, should think of the supper that Christ instituted. And so in Mark chapter 6, Verse 41, we have these verbs, take, bless, break, and give. And in chapter 14, where there's the institution of the Lord's Supper, we have these very verbs in the same order. I think that C.E.B. Cranfield is right when he says, as the multitude had once enjoyed table fellowship with Jesus, as his guests by the Lake of Galilee... So now the church enjoys table fellowship with the exalted Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper tells us that we do not live for earthly bread. That the bread of life discourse in John makes it plain that the only bread that satisfies is Jesus. He is the source that fed the multitude. The Christian life is about feeding on Christ in turn by faith. And many a Christian can testify that even in a prison cell, when food was withheld and hunger pangs were almost unbearable, yet these Christians continued to live and even thrive by drawing on the bread of life in the very depths of their souls, just as you and I may so live today in the midst of our lesser but real problems. You know, there's much tribulation in the Christian life. You remember what the word tribulation means? It's the word thlipsis in the Greek. It means pressure. And we're going to live with pressure of all sorts in a fallen world until it is relieved by the coming of Jesus. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. That's when the pressure will be relieved. And we participate in the afflictions of Christ, Colossians 1, 24. But through it all, we are pilgrims for whom the Savior provides himself as our sustenance. But not only is there a present reference, but also as we consider this connection that should be drawn, having read the whole gospel of Mark, there's a future reference for us. What does it mean? It means that there's fulfillment. What does it mean for us? It means that there is a present reference. There is now communion with the triune God, but also there's a future hope for you, believer, and for everyone who lives and dies in Christ. So that in Mark 14, the Lord's Supper anticipates this eschatological feast. That is to say, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, the banquet that awaits us at the end of time 
He speaks of it like this, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And so the post-resurrection reader of the feeding of the 5,000 finds his attention directed to the Lord's Supper, finds his attention drawn to God's provision in the wilderness, and that in turn points to the feast at the end of time in which there will be the fulfillment of all of the provisions that God has made for his people throughout all the centuries. So your Christian life is troubled, and you live in a fallen world, and you know your home is elsewhere. And you begin, as time goes by, to long more for that home and to see this world system to be the fallen world system that it is. And it's rightly been observed that the Lord's Supper was an unfinished meal. The last cup remained untouched on the table. What is that telling us? Well, it's telling us that we should look at our communion services as unfinished meals as we look forward to the day in which we will eat and drink of the fruit of the vine with Jesus in the consummated kingdom. Unhindered, unending, undiminished communion with God awaits you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The old wine gives way to the new. The old order of things will have passed away. There will be a new enjoyment of which the Lord's Supper is now a real indicator. And we will in that day, as Klaus Schilder put it, we will know something so blessed that there is no after effect of sin. No after effect of sin can mar in the least the blessedness of heaven. So just think of it. What will it be in that day? that this Messiah who fed the 5,000, who fed his disciples at the supper, who continues to feed his people as we commune with him in that service of communion and to dwell upon the reality of what Christ did for us, what will it be on that day when there is for us the fulfillment of hope, a hope that will not disappoint, a hope that is certain for everyone who believes in Jesus? What will it be on that day? I've read this to you before. I read it in a book. Somebody else used it as an illustration. I read it years ago, about 1990. And I've used this illustration as we have dealt with the uh, parable of the wedding banquet. Well, we're anticipating a banquet. Listen to this little story. It's from the Boston Globe, and it was written June 1990. Maybe some of you will remember. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements that they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. Don't get me started on that. But now back to the point. After leaving a check for half that amount as down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. 
I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. And when his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, to forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really I am. Well, it seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with a party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She got back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off cardboard, uh, off uh, cardboard, dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life of the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. Now, I'm asking the question, what will that banquet look like? Well, just imagine you're there, and someone says, you see that man? He was a Dutch Reformed minister in the time of the Protestant Reformation, and he was burned at the stake. Look at him feast. Someone else is going to say, that woman right there, uh, she was was living a life of deep sin, and the Lord saved her. The Lord saved her. Someone else is going to say, that was was my my child who died in infancy, And, and now... Look at that resurrection body and how he feasts in the presence of Christ. Oh, there's my mother. There's my father. Let me go and and hug them in their resurrection bodies. And we together feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, Jehovah fed his people in the wilderness. Jesus, Jehovah, come into this world, fed the 5,000. Jehovah institutes the supper of the Lord for us to enjoy and anticipates that great day. Jehovah, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has brought us on that day, we will see, as his guests, only through his shed blood and sovereign grace. In a way far exceeding that story that I just read. There will be a banquet that awaits us and we will worship the Lamb together 
every tear will be dried. Jesus will have taken his cotton handkerchief and wiped away every tear, every one of them. So let's think about these things as we conclude. The text is about the unique authority of Jesus to provide about what he came to do. Who is this that can multiply the loaves and fish and feed 5,000 men plus families? He is the greater provider than Moses. He is greater than the manna from heaven. He is the shepherd who brings his people into green pastures. He is the restorer of our souls who spreads a feast for us in the presence of our enemies and makes our cup overflow. He is God in the flesh. God's revelation reaches its zenith in him. And he is the image of the invisible God. The Father reveals himself as our Savior from sin in Christ. Do not look elsewhere. You will not have communion with God any other way. You will have no forgiveness of sins in any other person or any other thing or any other philosophy. No, no, Christ alone. Look to Him. Look to Christ alone. And it is not faith, then revelation. That's modernism. You start with yourself and your own idea of faith, and then you find out what you might want revelation to look like. No, no, it's revelation, then faith. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and we find in him the only object of faith, and we believe in Christ alone. And so, he is the greater prophet than Elisha, a holy and just king unlike Herod, with a greater and more wonderful kingdom. He is the one who leads his people in the wilderness, the one who gives rest in the desert, He is the maker of the new covenant in his blood, the one who brings his community to his table, the one who leads us, every believer, to the eschatological feast at the last day. And those given spiritual wisdom from above come in faith and find their sustenance in him who will bring us to the feast of the consummation as we read in Proverbs 9.5. Wisdom calls us, using the language of the feast, come, eat my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.